Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, welcome back to Breaking Down Collapse. This is part two of the second installment of our new mini-series, Why We're Wrong, or so they say, on climate change. Last week, Kellen and I discussed Don't Look Up and how it portrays the acceptance or not acceptance of climate change and other collapse topics by the public, as well as addressing a couple of questions or a couple of arguments climate change deniers make against climate change. First, we spoke about the very basic idea that is brought up that the earth isn't warming at all or that some areas are cooling. So we address that. And then secondarily, we address the idea of scientific consensus and whether or not there is consensus among the scientific community. And on that one, we kind of came to this conclusion that there is scientific consensus in the upper 90% range, and that while there are claims out there of many scientists who disagree with the idea of human-caused climate change, those are coming primarily from scientists who don't have anything to do with climatology at all, but hold other sort of random um, titles in the field of science. And Kellen, if you don't mind, um, there's one thing that I didn't mention in that episode regarding scientific consensus that I wanted to bring up, and that's that there were some studies that were done on the public's view of scientific consensus versus what scientific consensus actually is. So one was the question basically asking, what do you think scientific consensus is? 
on climate change. And the public thinks that only 55% of scientists agree on human-caused climate change, when in reality, that number is somewhere around 97%. So there's so many people out there who don't know what scientists believe about climate change. They think that it's all up in the air and it's about half and half and there's so much confusion around it, when in reality, there's only 3% of scientists in the field that disagree. Another study showed that 55% of people said that they thought the science was still unsettled and 45% that believed that scientists were on the same page. And then lastly were the studies that showed what the American public actually believes about climate change themselves, with 59% of Americans either saying no or I don't know when asked if they believed climate change is happening and is human caused, and only 41% said yes. So there's a clear disconnect when you have 97% of scientists saying this is real, this is happening, and 41% of the public agreeing with that. There's something wrong with that in, in my eyes. Yeah, and I think part of the problem there is that the issue has become so politicized that regardless of what scientists in the field are actually saying, when you've got a country kind of split down the middle, you've got left and right, and generally opinions about climate change align on one side and are opposing on the other side, it feels like, hey, everybody's kind of half and half on this. And I think... When it comes to the exact numbers on consensus, it can get really tricky to say, okay, who's actually an expert? Like we talked about previously, you can't just say anybody with a PhD is an authority on climate change. And even saying, well, what about scientists within the field? You know, there, there's a whole range of subfields or subtopics that people can be experts on and which ones do you include and which ones don't you? You can, you can really start to split hairs, but you know, for the the one or two studies that we mentioned last time that say, oh, there's not as much consensus as we all think, which have kind of been debunked. There are so many other studies saying, no, there is consensus. Like you said, it's up in the high 90s. So I agree that there's a real disconnect there with the public's perception of what scientists think and what qualified scientists actually think. You know, the information is there for everyone to see and to find. Learning about climate change is not all that hard. You know, you can do some quick Google searches. There's great articles out there. The information is a few clicks away. And frankly, it's mainstream enough that you can ask that it's kind of hard to avoid, frankly, climate change and information around climate change. And as we're watching all these things happen around us regarding climate change, like you have to go out of your way almost to ignore that it's there, that it's happening, that weather events are increasing and all of these different things. Referring back to our conversation last week, which I will do multiple times today, it's basically the equivalent of saying, don't look up, right? The comet is right there. You can see it in the sky. Raise your eyes and the truth is right before you. And yet we have, like you said, it's politicized to the point where we're chanting, don't look up, don't look up. Um, and so there is a large majority of people who have chosen to take that path and refuse to, to look up which is sad. And I hope that that changes. It seems like slowly over time, the public's view has slowly shifted. Um, you know, we've noticed it's gone from climate change isn't real at all. It's all a bunch of baloney now to more like, okay, climate change is actually happening, but humans aren't causing it. Uh, shifting even a little further to, okay, climate change is real. Maybe humans are causing it, but there's absolutely nothing that we can do to stop it now. Um, you know, it's this evolution of the idea 
that's at least hopefully taking us closer and closer to acceptance of what the truth actually is. Yeah, and a lot of the concern, I think, when you talk about that evolution of the public perception of climate change, it comes from the timing of it. And it's great that people are becoming more accepting of climate change, you know, but if it takes a couple more generations for it to really catch on, will there be too much warming already baked in? You know, it's a real concern. Yeah. And are we already there? You know, there's all these different ideas about how much we've actually baked in up to this point and what exactly that would lead to. You know, if we stopped all emissions right now or we were able to reach climate goals right now, where would it lead us to? And and I'm not going to claim to know which bit of opinion is right on that. But, you know, there's this common idea, this common thought that we're already baked in at over two degrees. So, you know, two degrees isn't extinction level stuff, but it is uh, very potentially life altering and collapse inducing on its own. Okay, so let's talk about another counter argument to climate change. And this is one that you, you kind of mentioned, which is just that humans aren't responsible for the warming. There have been a number of reasons given for this. Uh, people will say, hey, it's just cyclical. This has happened throughout Earth's history. We go through periods of warming and cooling. It's just part of how things happen naturally. We're not responsible for it. Others will say, you know, it's just because of increased volcanoes or it's because of an increased output from the sun there there have been some studies to show this solar forcing this increased output from the sun has taken place over the past 150 years others have talked about uh, deep ocean currents and that that's really what drives our climate and that's completely outside of our control or they talk about all of the natural non-anthropogenic causes of greenhouse gases like all the methane that comes from swamps you know there's there's a couple of studies uh, one found that high temperatures similar to those observed in the 20th century before 1990 occurred around AD 1000 to AD 1100 in the northern hemisphere another study talks about summer temperatures during the roman empire being consistently higher than temperatures during the 20th century along those same lines there are some studies that state you know warming has preceded not followed a rise in co2 and that they can look back at Earth's climate record in ice core samples and and see that things warmed up before there was an increase in CO2. So they then say, so that means regardless of how much CO2 we're putting out there, we're not causing climate change. So anyways, there's a lot here. There's a lot of arguments here. The main gist behind it is, hey, we're not the ones causing the warming. Corey, what are your thoughts around that? Well, this is really a multi-part question, right? There's so many points to that. The first thing that I'll say is that um, this idea that climate change happens cyclically. Yes, that is true. They are not wrong in that. Climate change does happen cyclically. The climate has changed several times in many ways over the hundreds of millions of years that we have records, but it has never happened at the pace that it's happening nor at the scale that is currently happening. Right now, climate change is happening at a rate between 20 and 50 times faster than the fastest climate change event in all of history. The process typically takes thousands or even tens of thousands of years to be carried out. We're condensing all of that change down to just a couple of centuries starting about 150 years ago. You know, scientists define a mass extinction event as around three quarters of all species dying out over a short 
geological time frame, which is anything less than 2.8 million years. So when we think of like a mass extinction event, I think a lot of times we think of like, it was something that happened rapidly, like maybe a decade, right? And it caused all this extinction. No, it happens over 2.8 million years to be considered um, a mass extinction event. And there have been multiple extinction events in the past, some of them caused by excess CO2 in the atmosphere. Those were not caused by humans. Um, and they took a very long time to come about. So that's to say, yes, CO2 has caused extinctions in the past, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't worry about it now. That should be a warning sign to us now as we're watching the CO2 levels increase so dramatically and so quickly. Again, 20 to 50 times faster than has ever happened in history. So this was an interesting uh, piece that I read from an article. It said, Fossil records don't just tell us what creatures existed before us, but also how long a species can naturally survive before becoming extinct without human interference. This is referred to as the background rate, and it is equal to around one species extinction per one million species per year. Currently, because of human activity, the actual background rate is tens of thousands of times higher, meaning species are becoming extinct much faster than they should be. Studies have found that some species lost from Earth would have continued to survive for 800 to 10,000 years without the interference of human activities. So everything about what's going on right now is happening so much faster at such a bigger scale, so much more intense. And it's because of humans. You know, the, the human brain is really bad at seeing very large numbers, at understanding exponential growth, at comprehending the vastness of space and the universe, um, or being able to consider time scales in the hundreds of millions of years. There have been five mass extinction events in the last 400 plus million years. We're now in the sixth, as we know. And so are we really to believe that it's just by chance that humans Human civilization showed up right as a sixth mass extinction event started, a mass extinction event that is happening so much more fast than has ever happened before. You know, are we are we the victims of some insane climate lottery that allowed us to evolve and become civilized just right in time as the climate decided to start a mass extinction event? Or could it be, just maybe, could it be that the fossil fuels we found 150 years ago and burned all up in the tiniest blip of time, basically packing millions of years of CO2 releases into just a couple of lifetimes, you know, could it be that that had anything to do with, with what we're seeing right now? If you really believe that that is just completely up to chance, um, you know, humans from our very earliest ancestors have only been around for like maybe a million years. And human civilizations have only been around for, you know, 10 to 20 complex societies, 3000 years. We're talking about the teeniest, tiniest little blip of time. And when you look at the CO2 increases, when you look at the temperature increases, they are all happening in the last couple hundred years since we decided to start burning up fossil fuels, doing something that no creature in all of Earth's history has ever done before. You know, I think your statement, your your rebuttal to that argument is about as effective as it possibly can be. If if somebody can hear everything that you're saying and still feel like humans aren't responsible for the warming, then to me, that's surprising. I, I don't think there's anything more you could say to convince somebody like that. I think it is worth validating that the part of their argument that I think is valid here is just that humans aren't the only cause. 
you know, it's worth recognizing that, yeah, if we've got volcanoes and we've got these things happening with deep ocean currents and we've got solar forcing, if if those things are contributing, then yeah, let's call that out as contributing factors to our global warming. But like you said, you look at the time scale and, and when you chart it out and you see that just in this past 100 years, the way we get this huge spike in warming, unlike anything that's ever been seen before, and generally just the sound scientific principles around the greenhouse effect and the way that greenhouse gases trap in radiation, right? It, it's completely illogical to say we're not playing a major part in this. Yeah, it's like it's like if you're driving your car at 120 miles per hour on the highway and it's windy outside and you crash, right? And then you say that it's the wind's fault that you crashed had nothing to do with the fact that you were, you know, going twice the speed limit or whatever. Yeah, maybe the wind did play a factor in that, right? But I guarantee you if you had been going the speed limit, that wind wouldn't have knocked you off the road. So it's just that idea that yes, it's absolutely valid that there are other factors in this happening. But the activities that we're engaged in as humans are certainly making it worse, if not being the very primary cause and issue that's multiplying any of these natural effects. Yeah. And when you think about the implications of it being human caused, those are huge. That means we have a major responsibility to take action. It also means we don't have time to slowly adapt. I think about the analogy that's always used, you know, the, the frog in the pot of water that's at room temperature. And as you slowly crank the heat up, it gets boiled without even noticing it. Like a frog cannot be in boiling water without dying. Maybe if you put a frog in room temperature water and then you allowed that frog to have 500,000 generations of frogs as the temperature slowly warms up to the boiling point, maybe it would be able to adapt and evolve and survive that. But we're talking about, like you said, such a dramatic increase in such a short period of time that it makes sense why we're seeing this mass extinction event. Well, and when you look at past mass extinction events, when it's talking about, you know, anything less than 2.8 million years, 2.8 million years seems like a long time to adapt and change to something, right? But in some of these past extinction events, we're talking about those millions of years passing and still having mass extinctions. Species weren't able to evolve. There's no reason why we should believe that we're any different. Perfect. Okay, well, I think we've addressed that one pretty well. Let's talk about another point that gets brought up, which is that warming is happening, but the impacts of it are minimal. And, and some might even say, hey, global warming, that's actually beneficial. And usually this is somebody who's not taking the conversation very seriously, right? You might be talking to somebody who says, hey, I think global warming sounds great. I, I live in a place with cold winters. I'd love to suddenly be on a tropical paradise. But to somebody who says global warming is either not detrimental or not very detrimental, how would you respond? Well, this kind of goes back to that idea that people are not good at seeing problems that are not happening to themselves. Like if it's not affecting them directly, we, we've talked about that in previous episodes. Um, we tend to not notice that it's happening at all. You know, there are scientific studies showing that more than one million species are at risk of extinction from the current level of warming, not even taking into consideration future warming. 
more than a dozen species are going extinct every day right now. And climate change exacerbates the activities humans are already doing that drive animals towards extinction, like overfishing, um, changing the way we use land and the way the animals are able to use land, uh, plastics, other pollutants, all of those things. Earlier, we talked about background rates and how fast they're increasing extinction. Another study I found says that we're increasing the extinction rate of animals by a thousand times and that we could lose between 30 and 50% of all species in the next 25 to 30 years. So by mid-century, half of all of Earth's species could be extinct. That, that's just insane to think about. And so part of this argument is that climate change might actually be better for some areas. And yeah, while it may have a small positive impact on certain areas or on some species, the net result is overwhelmingly negative. You know, an example is that parts of Canada may become fertile, whereas they're currently hostile or ice covered. Okay, but the process is going to take decades at the very least. Meanwhile, people in the tropics are dying of heat from wet bulb temperatures and having nowhere to go. Hurricanes, tornadoes, floods, drought, wildfires are intensifying, you know, bread baskets are failing. But hey, some species like mosquitoes and cockroaches may thrive during climate change. Like the positives of climate change are are so small. You know, if you view that as a positive, you're basically turning moldy, rotten lemons into lemonade. And you can drink that, but I'm going to steer clear of it. Well said. And there's plenty of evidence out there that the impacts are already very significant and that they're going to increase exponentially. And I think that's where there's the disconnect sometimes. Like if you're talking to somebody who's 70 years old and you show them the way warming has been increasing during their lifetime, it looks like this big spike on the chart. But they say, hey, in my life, things have stayed pretty much the same. We've had warm summers and cold winters and my lifestyle has honestly only gotten better. And so like you said, they, they might just not be seeing the impacts yet. And meanwhile, we're seeing, you know, wildfires and droughts and floods and severe weather events all increasing exponentially. But the difference between what happens to us at 1.5 degrees Celsius above the baseline and two degrees Celsius above the baseline is huge. We're talking about severe disruptions, right? And then you talk about the difference from two degrees Celsius to 2.5. And and what seems like such a slight change is an absolute catastrophe for the, the global population. So I think it's worth validating, hey, yeah, there's been warming during your lifetime. Maybe that hasn't changed a whole lot for you. But this is causing real issues and it's going to cause really, really big issues down the road. And some of that kind of leads to the next argument that people make, which is just, hey, it won't affect me. And that might be because of their socioeconomic status or because of where they live, or they might just say, hey, I'll, I will be dead by the time it gets that bad. So any thoughts for somebody who's saying, I shouldn't really care about this because it's not going to affect me very much? Well, that person sounds like a jerk <laughs> uh, to just not care about a problem because you won't be directly affected. Like, can it get more selfish than that? I, I think we know that it will affect everyone, um, though they may be right that it won't affect them as bad, at least especially not at first. Um, you know, it's true that the oldest and the wealthiest individuals are probably safest from climate change. The oldest may escape never having to witness or experience its devastating effects. Right, you've got people that are dying today who lived a full life. They, you know, there have been things that have been happening with climate change. It may not have affected them super personally. And yeah, they would have been right that it didn't affect them terribly. 
but again, people that think that, that it's all about them, like that's, that's, they're so far gone. I simply can't see the conversation with that person even mattering. Like if they don't care at all about others, if they say climate change isn't a problem because it will only hurt poor people and my grandkids after I'm dead, like that's just kind of a a lost cause to me. Um, But but I think they're likely wrong anyway in that they will experience the negative effects of climate change or they likely already, you know, a 30 year old today who's a multimillionaire, if he plans on living another 40 or 50 years, he is going to be affected by climate change and his wealth isn't going to stop that. Now, it could help make him comfortable. It could help soften the blow. But that person can't just think that they won't ever be inconvenienced by it. You know, when you think of supply chains and much of the havoc that we've seen these last couple of years, a lot of that is from severe storms like hurricanes, uh, you know, in the Gulf, snowstorms in Texas, freak floods or tornadoes. They make things harder to find. They increase inflation. They damage our economy. And one day it could completely destroy the economy. Again, for the oldest, yeah, they may escape. And by escape, I mean, they may die before we see those worst of consequences. But for the young rich deniers, I don't see them escaping those types of consequences ever. Yeah, you make really great points. And I know all along the way, as I'm bringing up these counterpoints to climate change, I keep coming in with like, hey, here's where their argument is valid. And I'm doing that in an attempt to understand where they're coming from and and see the rationale, the reasoning behind the argument that they're making. In this case, if somebody says, hey, it's not going to affect me, so I shouldn't care. The part of that that I think makes sense is, you know, that there is a lot of suffering in the world. Um, If I try to focus my life on helping people, where do I even start? Like, do I help minorities who have been ostracized or people who have been oppressed? Do I help people in parts of the world that don't have water or electricity? Do I try to help people with severe physical disabilities or mental disabilities? Do I try to help victims of abuse or rape? You know, I I could go on and on and, and none of us have the emotional capacity to take on the burden of every person who's suffering out there in the world and focus our thoughts and our energy and our efforts toward helping them. We, we, we're just not capable. So when you're driving down the freeway and you see a terrible car accident, you might slow down. You know, there's there's all the police cars and the ambulances and you look at how totaled the car is and you, and you might say, man, I hope they're okay. But then you keep driving and you probably don't think about it again the rest of the day, the rest of the week, because you feel like, hey, that's something that's maybe outside of my control. And there's enough problems within my circle, people that I need to worry about. So that's a long way of saying, I think there's something valid about someone who says, you know what, in in my case... I'm really not going to be that impacted by it, maybe because of where I live, because I'm very secure financially. I don't think that's an excuse to not care. But I think if you know, you're somebody in the twilight of your life who knows that you're going to die before you see any major impacts of climate change, you know, there's not a whole lot you can do about it. I'm not going to fault you if you don't spend every minute of the rest of your life trying to fight against climate change. Does that make sense? Is that fair? Well, I guess to push back a little bit, I think it just depends on what the purpose of the argument is from this person in the first place. You know, we're talking about counter arguments to the reality of climate change. And if someone's saying, like, I don't care about climate change because it's not going to affect me, um, I don't necessarily think that a person has to spend every minute of every day of their life fighting against it. I'm not right. Like we're all involved and we're all engaged in this consumer society that's 
propelling it forward. But it's just such a lack to me of like basic decency to point out that I don't care about this issue because I'm going to be protected from it. You know, it, it doesn't take a lot to say, yeah, this is a very important, critical issue that's going to affect a lot of people. And I really hope that we come up with a solution um, to say, no, I don't care about it because it's not going to affect me. <laughs> you know, like I, it just feels like, like sort of holier than thou, I'm fine. So screw the rest of you guys. I get what you're saying that like, yeah, I, I'm not going like, to donate my entire salary every year for the rest of my life to combating climate change because I know that's not going to make a difference. Um, but the reason I'm not going to do that is because it's not going to make a difference, not because it's not going to affect me personally. Like if I want to help other people, I'm going to help other people how I can, but whether or not the issue is going to affect me personally shouldn't change whether or not I'm going to help other people with their issues. I, I don't know if that makes sense, but that's just kind of some of the thoughts that are coming to my mind. Yeah. And I honestly, again, I'm trying to present kind of the other side, but I'm with you on the fact that there's a moral obligation to care and to try to do something, whether it's big or small. You know, if if you're somebody who lives in early American history, U.S. history, you see slavery happening around you, but you're a white landowner. It's not fair at all. There's something very wrong about you just seeing the horrible things happening and saying, well, it doesn't hurt me, so I'm not going to do anything about it. Even if you know that you can't change the whole system, that there's really not a whole lot you can do to to end slavery because the time and the culture is so entrenched in it, it doesn't mean that it's okay for you to be a slave owner. And it doesn't mean that it's okay for you to stay quiet when there's opportunities to, to give your opinion or to go vote one way or another. And, you know, I, I feel very strongly uh, about how awful and terrible and, and frankly evil slavery is. And so maybe that's why I use it as an example. And, and I'm saying that to back up your point, that there's a, a moral obligation here to care. It has a lot to do with human decency and we can't give somebody a free pass uh, just because they won't be as strongly affected by it. Yeah, we don't, like we've talked about a lot, we don't prescribe, we don't tell people what to do on this podcast. And we're not saying, I'm not saying like you should sacrifice everything you you have and you should give up all your possessions and completely stop consuming anything. Like that's not possible, right? I'm not telling you that you should take action to stop climate change for the sake of other people. But I am saying it's pretty crappy of a person to outwardly say to someone else, I don't care about climate change because I will be protected from it. Uh, it just comes across kind of um, like a sociopath a little bit to me. Anyway, it's kind of a convoluted idea because we don't really know where the this argument's coming from. <laughs> why Why would someone say that in the first place? Um, so it's kind of a hard a hard discussion to, to really have. But, um, but I can certainly see how people might especially think this way, right? Even if they're not saying it out loud, just thinking like, I've got other things to worry about. I'm not going to worry about climate change because I don't really think it's going to affect me in my lifetime. Um, I guess to end this, one thought that just came to my mind, it's like, it's like, I don't concern myself with cancer. I don't think about cancer a lot. I'm not super worried about cancer. I don't have it. None of my family has it. But I don't outwardly say like, I don't care about cancer or think it's an important issue because I, I don't have to worry about it. You know, there are Tons of people who are suffering every day from cancer and it's this terrible plague. And I sincerely hope that we come up with a cure to cancer. And while I'm not going to donate all my money to the cause, um, I'm also not going to uh, be like anti-cancer research. Okay, enough of that.
Great thoughts. And yeah, I, I, I hope we don't get too preachy there when we talk about it, but I think it's worth bringing up that that, that is a common sentiment where people say it doesn't really affect me, so I don't care. All right. So what I'd like to do, Corey, is go through these next ones quickly, mostly out of mercy for our listeners so they don't have to hear us blab on too much about each of these, but I think they're worth at least addressing. So the challenge here is for you and I to both be concise. Okay, next argument. The the earth is made to handle CO2. There has always been a ton of CO2 in the atmosphere and the excess gets absorbed by oceans and forests and other carbon sinks. And they might cite studies that say, hey, about 50% of the CO2 released by the burning of fossil fuels has already been reabsorbed by the Earth's carbon sinks. Or, you know, this other study from 2002 to 2011, 26% of human-caused CO2 emissions were absorbed specifically just by the world's oceans. So somebody comes to you and they cite these studies and they say, hey, the Earth is taking care of it. We don't need to worry about it. What insights do you have? Well, I think it's interesting that the argument is the earth can handle CO2. I think that's 100% correct that earth can handle the CO2, but life on earth cannot handle CO2 at the levels that we're talking about. Um, There's this website that talks about the Permian Triassic extinction about 253 million years ago. It was uh, an extinction event that made 96% of marine life go extinct and 70% of terrestrial life. And it was primarily due to carbon dioxide increases from volcanic activity. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but the very end of it says, corals were a group of marine life forms that were amongst the worst affected. It took 14 million years for the ocean reefs to rebuild to their former glory. And this was because of ocean acidification due to the amount of CO2 that was in the atmosphere that was then absorbed by the oceans, which flipped them basically, made them acidic and killed uh, marine life. It's just insane to me that it took 14 million years for life in the oceans, for coral life in the oceans to regenerate. Earth is fine. Earth can handle the CO2. But all of that death, that mass extinction event and all of the time that it took to recuperate it, um, it is just mind blowing. And to think that humans could somehow be more resilient than than the coral in this case, you know, or that we could come back sooner than 14 million years, you know, it could be one percent of that and it's just it's just an insane amount of time it also goes to show that the oceans are not immune to this we've done episodes on ocean acidification and the impacts that it has on life in them i don't think it is at all fair to say that the earth is going to protect us from ourselves in this situation by keeping co2 limited one more thing i'll say on this i know we want to be brief There have been times in the past with way higher concentrations of CO2 than now and that life did continue. But yeah, that's not at any point in the last one or two million years. And this happened back well before there weren't humans at all, let alone eight billion humans who rely on fragile agricultural methods with fragile supply chains, with low water resources. Back then, there weren't hundreds of millions of people to force into mass migrations, and there was no geopolitical issues to strain and break with those mass migrations. I mean, we're just talking about the complexity of society today, comparing it to back then when animals could survive with with lots of CO2. To me, it's like, you built your house on a dry riverbed, and someone comes and says, hey, water's gonna run down this river, So you're in danger. If you were to respond something like, well, yeah, water runs down this river every year and there's never been any problems. Like, yeah, because no one's ever built a house on the river before. You've built up this insane structure. And just because there's water that's flowed through before 
doesn't mean you're going to be able to be fine when the water flows through this time. We're not immune to the CO2 uh, just because other life forms in the past were. Right. And I think sometimes here people are connecting two dots that are too much of a stretch. So for you to say, hey, research shows the earth has taken care of 50% of the fossil fuel emissions that we've spewed out. That might be true. That's all good and great. But what about the other 50%? You know, just because there are such things as carbon sinks and not every bit of carbon that we're emitting is causing a problem. It's very clear there's plenty of other data to show that what is in the atmosphere that we've put out there that hasn't been absorbed by the oceans or by the forests or whatever is causing a major issue and we need to do something about it. Okay, the next one we could spend several episodes on. In fact, we already have. Um, and it's just that this, this idea that technology will save us. And this can come from a lot of different angles. People might say, hey, we're, we're phasing out of fossil fuels. We've got technology um, that's going to help us stop climate change, whether that's geoengineering, um, whether that's carbon capture. They might say we've got technology not only to help us stop climate change and help us phase out of emitting so many fossil fuels, but also technology that'll help us adapt. There's a lot of this. This might be one of the biggest counter arguments that's out there. When people say technology is going to take care of it, we're innovative, we'll have the solutions. What do you say, Corey? Well, the first part of that was that we're phasing out of fossil fuels and we're, we're not. I mean, that's still not the case. Yeah, 2020, we had a decrease in fossil fuel usage because of the pandemic and the shutdowns, but we saw what that did to the economy. And now we've rebounded the economy, we're trying to shoot back up and, and fossil fuel usage is on the climb again. For one example, in 2018, energy demand grew by 2.3% globally, its fastest pace in 10 years. And what's most notable is that 70% of that growth was provided by fossil fuels and only 30% by renewables and nuclear. So that's not saying that 30% of all energy consumed was renewables or nuclear. It's saying that of all the growth we had, only 30% of it was renewables. So um, our fossil fuels are making up the majority of the growth. And we can't even start to tip the other way until renewables are making up a majority of the percentage of growth. When it comes to technology, like you said, We've got episodes on this. We'll be doing more episodes on this. This is another really pertinent point from Don't Look Up. Um, I think it was, to me, in that movie, the main reason that they all died was the fact that the government and the wealthy, you know, the elites made the people believe that they were going to be better off because of these technologies that were going to save them. But really, in the end, it was the reliance on those technologies that killed them. You know, we talk about greenwashing, which is basically when corporations say that they're doing things to save the planet when really it's just a ploy to get you to spend more money on their products. It's accelerating the rate at which everything's happening. You talk about geoengineering or carbon capture. Geoengineering is a big gamble. The largest carbon capture facility in the world counteracted something like a handful of seconds worth of emissions in 2020. There's simply no way to build enough of those to make an impact and certainly not in a quick enough amount of time. Um, I think we'll see attempts at them in the future. We'll see attempts at geoengineering, but to rely on those as things that will completely reverse or mitigate climate change, I think is absolute foolishness. Yeah. And the part of this argument that I think comes from the right place is that 
technology is awesome. I think, Corey, you and I are so excited anytime we hear about evolving technologies that will help us mitigate these issues. You know, at one point we talked about some new technologies being developed for batteries and that there's some real potential that will be much better at storing energy in the future. And we're super excited about that. So technology is awesome. Every time we introduce technology that helps us reduce our emissions or helps us fight climate change or helps us adapt to climate change, that's something wonderful and worth applauding. And we should continue to make those innovations and advancements. So so none of this is against technology. But I think what you're saying is that we don't have enough time. We don't have enough resources to be able to rely on technology, making the meaningful difference that it needs to as quick as we need it to. Okay, next argument is that so-and-so benefits when you and I are scared of climate change, so we can't trust the data that's out there. They might say it's the government or corporations. They might say, hey, this is all just a political power play from the left or you know, scientists get grants when they introduce research or data about climate change. So they're being incentivized to do this. They want to publish alarmist claims. There's all these reasons they can say that this group or that group benefits when we are scared of climate change. So we can't trust it. Yeah, I think there's a few things to be said to that one. Um, First, it seems like the exact opposite of that is true, right? corporations, the government benefit when we aren't scared of climate change. It continues the status quo. They're able to continue producing and and keeping the economy and all these different things. Scientists in general, like specifically for like the IPCC reports and all that, it's all volunteer work. It's not paid. um, You know, they're not paid to say one thing or another. What they say doesn't change the way that they're paid. On the opposite end, though, many climate deniers are paid you know, they specifically have ties to the fossil fuel industry. They are given benefits and propped up to say the things that they're saying against climate change. So to me, the opposite is true of what's what the argument is there. And second, this goes back to what I had said. I think it was in the last episode, how in Don't Look Up, it all became so politicized. The problem wasn't political. The problem was a fact. It was a truth that was happening. Some organizations will take advantage of that fact, of that dilemma, and make it a personal thing, right? They'll use it for personal gains. And that happens on every side of the aisle. You know, politically in the US, the right tends to deny it. So the status quo can be continued. The less is it's a problem, but doesn't actually do anything about it. I mean, you can look at, you know, the first year of, of Joe Biden's presidency for an example of that. He says something to get across to his constituents to appease part of his party and then does the exact opposite, which is just to continue again the status quo. So it's just turned into a political game where it is used inappropriately by by both sides. But that doesn't make the problem itself any less true. Yeah, there's some logical fallacy there that just because somebody has an ulterior motive doesn't change the validity of the argument itself. And we do need to be careful of that, right? If somebody is coming at it with a certain agenda, we definitely should be more skeptical of the viewpoints they're expressing. But you can always say, hey, that data can't be trusted. That data can't be trusted. But when you have so much data from so many different sources that's peer reviewed, it would have to be a major conspiracy for this all to be a fraud. You've made great points there. Okay, next argument. Climate models are unreliable. They're always changing. So that just means any predictions about the future are simply scientists' best 
guess. You know, we we can't even predict the weather very well. We we can't say what next week's weather is going to be. How can we possibly predict future climate change? And sometimes they'll look at the models and say, hey, this model when applied to the past, can't simulate ice ages that we've seen or very warm climates that we've seen before. Or, hey, I'm looking at this model for climate change and I think its projections are too high. So lots of reasoning behind it, but people are just basically saying the models are unreliable. We can't trust it. Yeah. So, I mean, there is there's some truth to this, right? As far as we know that models aren't completely accurate. It is hard to trust exactly what the models are going to say. They're always changing them. They're always refining them. But it does seem like they're getting more and more consistent. Um, the California Gov website on climate change says this. It says, climate models are very good at modeling climate. They are less accurate when used to predict local and specific details. The models are designed to be computer representations of how our climate works of course, computer models have limits based on our level of scientific knowledge and computer capacity. That is true of all models from the simplest to the most complex. Models are based on physical laws and different models over several decades have shown a similar and unambiguous picture of significant climate warming resulting from greenhouse gas emissions. Models remain valuable and essential tools for simulating, understanding, and predicting climate. So, I mean, I agree in essence that models are not perfect, that they are not to be trusted completely. They don't give us an idea of whether, right, it's overall trends and overall idea of where we're going. Um, the difference between me and the climate denier is that I think that the models are underestimating where they may believe that the models are overestimating. And this one perhaps is the most valid argument simply because there are so many factors at play. There's so many feedback loops that we can't really predict. There's so many tipping points. You know, another argument that's made sometimes, and I'll just tie it in here, is when people say greenhouse gases cause warming. That's true, but it's offset because they also create more clouds, which can cause cooling. And, you know, there's been new research showing that those increases in clouds don't offset the way that perhaps in the past we thought they did. Um, but we don't know a lot about that yet. There, there's still a lot more we have to learn. So that's just an example of one aspect that we can't model very well. I think of it as like, if you come to me, Corey, and you say, hey, I smoke three packs of cigarettes a day, when am I going to get lung cancer? Like I can look at a thousand case studies and all these other examples from other people who have smoked three packs a day. And there's going to be some variation there for some people. It might only take a handful of years till they develop lung cancer. And for some people, it might take a couple of decades. There's a range, but we can be confident that you're going to fall somewhere within that range. There's going to be a bell curve. Perhaps you're an outlier, but we are 99% sure you're going to develop lung cancer between this year and this year, right? So same thing with climate change. When we say, hey, we're going to hit this degree above the baseline at this year, it might happen sooner, it might happen later, but we're just giving a very well-calculated estimation within a certain range of probability and of reliability. All right, for the sake of time, Corey, let's jump to the last one, which is, hey, sure, climate change is real, but it will cost too much for us to do anything about it, so we shouldn't waste our time. I mean, yeah, I agree that it is going to cost a lot. Climate change mitigation is not cheap. We know that whether it's from the technology that they're trying to put forward to try and stop it. You know, if we're talking about carbon capture or, or whatever infrastructure needs to be put in place, but also from an economic standpoint, right? If if we're going to pull back on consumption, uh, then we're going to have to have some economic loss there that's pretty significant. 
Um, going back to that California website said the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development estimated that mitigating climate change would slow world GDP growth by about 0.2 percentage points per year, costing 5.5% of global GDP in 2050, but that climate change impacts would be as high as 14% of GDP, almost triple the cost of effective action. And some estimations um, actually put that the cost of an action would be much higher. I tend to think that 14% is an understatement if we're talking about collapse in the long run. Um, you know, at some point, that's like uh, 100% of GDP, you know, if, if things get bad enough. So it really seems like something that we can't afford not to fix. Yeah, it's going to cost a lot, but the costs of inaction are immeasurable. Yeah, the valid point here is that it's a sacrifice. But, you know, some define a sacrifice as doing something that hurts now for a greater benefit later. And I think what you've highlighted is is the perfect response, right? That it costs a lot for us to do something and that's going to hurt, but it would cost a lot more for us to not do anything and would hurt a lot worse. Yeah, a, a person might think that it costs a lot to save up for retirement right? That's money they could have in their paycheck now, but it's going to cost a lot more when you work until you're dead because you didn't save up. And I mean, you could use a million different comparisons here to to get the same point across, but yeah, it requires some sacrifice. And in this case, look, we have talked about this before. Um, Climate change may be past the point where it's, it's even fixable, right? Like we can mitigate it, but to someone who says like, it's just going to cost too much to make this happen. Like it's that catch 22. We got to do one or the other. The sacrifice that we might have to make to stop climate change could bring on collapse all by itself, likely would bring on collapse by itself. If we're going to decrease consumption to the level that would require to stop fossil fuel emissions, you know, that is likely going to cause an economic collapse and have all of its own issues. But that collapse, that sacrifice itself would be much better than the result of letting climate change run rampant. Agreed. Well, we've discussed a lot here between this episode and the previous episode. And honestly, we could have lots of episodes addressing all these counter arguments. I think we've really only scratched the surface, but I hope it helps for anybody who is having these conversations with people who are denying climate change, hearing their side and and maybe the points that they make that are valid and that are worth calling out and recognizing while also understanding the arguments for climate change and the reasons why there may be some discrepancies in their rationale and the logic that they're trying to present or some flaws in the research or data that they're coming to you with. Uh, I know for me, bringing up these counter arguments to climate change and hearing all of your responses, Corey, helps me have a better understanding of the predicament we're in and, and makes me feel like I'm more accurately grounded in fact instead of just emotion or or hearsay. Yeah, Kellen and I have talked about Often we're not the experts on this topic. Um, there are maybe experts on this topic listening right now that would have other thoughts and ideas to mention about some of the um, the ideas, answers, rebuttals that we gave. Um, so we'd love to hear from you if you have other thoughts beyond what we've talked about here. Um, this is a big topic. You know, we spent two episodes on it and um, we could have spent two episodes more. So And we're always happy to hear your thoughts and ideas. We really appreciate everybody listening. Thank you so much for lending your ear. We hope that we are providing value. Have a great week and we'll speak next time.